come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 38 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., recording here out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is I actually held up my end of the bargain and finally have watched Blood Quantum. And then I've also moved into the 1960s with Horrors of Spider Island. Now, these two movies don't necessarily have as much in common as I was hoping that they would, but I still think that they pair well enough for this podcast episode here. And then I will also have many reviews of Pontypool, Twilight, Martyrs, the original one, Cloverfield, Paranormal Activity, and Black Friday. Now this one actually, I probably watched more movies in just a few short days because I am currently on a furlough week, so I had a bunch of time on my hands, but I am going out of town. So I wanted to make sure that I got this out. So there's actually going to be some movies that I possibly will be watching this weekend that will be included on the next episode. Kind of like when I went on that trip uh, previously this month as well, or I guess it might have been the end of last month. But I just kind of want to fill you in just a little bit on that information. But aside from that, I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me. And first, I'm going to get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. Enjoy.
for my first mini review of this week. It is going to be Pontypool from 2008. This is directed by Bruce McDonald. And then it is written by Tony Burgess, who also wrote the novel. This stars Stephen McCaddy, Lisa Howell, and Georgina Riley. This is a fantasy horror thriller from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a radio host interprets the possible outbreak of a deadly virus which infects the small Ontario town that he is stationed in. Now, I'm not going to delve too much into this because I've already done a full review as this was a featured review on a previous episode. This is actually the first movie that I've already done that. And that episode, if you want to hear more of the in-depth thoughts, that'll be episode number six. Now, just what I kind of wanted to do here is just kind of update on the second viewing of just anything that kind of struck me this time around. And I have to say, even though that I know how this is going to play out, it's still got my anxiety going. And if you can do that, I mean, it's one of those movies that is pretty strong if I can, you know, know how this is going to end and I'm still worried about the characters and everything like that. I just found this to be an interesting thing to the point where I want to read this novel and I think I might move it up to the books that I have currently out from the library. I might have this one slide into being after that to read the series that Burgess had wrote and kind of see if it gives me any more in-depth insight into kind of what is going on with this because it's one of those things where I'm so intrigued to learn more that I wonder if it'll help my rating on the movie because I still don't necessarily know and understand the ending of it. But I do find it interesting that the English language is one of the hardest ones to learn. So having that be this virus is being transmitted through that language is kind of an interesting concept to play with here. Now, of course, these aren't zombies in the traditional sense as it transfers through language. So that's one of the things where, you know, it's not traditional in that way. And they also want to find somebody once they've turned to become their victim per se. And something that gets said in this movie that I didn't really pick up on the first time is that they suicide themselves into that person, which is kind of a weird concept as well. I also like that we get to see what happens to Laura Ann in this movie once she doesn't find a victim, and it's almost like the virus has to get out of somebody, and if it doesn't infect another person, then it kind of kills that host. I think the acting is really great, especially from Stephen McHattie. He's such a strong actor that I don't know if I've ever seen him in a bad role. I mean, I guess the worst movie I've ever seen him in would probably be Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby, but he was very young in that movie from what I remember. And I said, it just works so well, in my opinion, that I'm at the edge of my seat trying to figure out anything. I also like how the way to kind of beat this for the English language is to make words lose their meaning. Just an interesting, you know, concept overall here. And it keeps me intrigued. And I also like how it kind of plays. My friend Tim Walker on Facebook had said something when I posted my rating for this movie about how it kind of feels like War of the Worlds where it's all done through a radio broadcast. I think it helps to make this claustrophobic feel to it because pretty much the whole movie is taking place in the basement. I believe it's of a church where this radio studio is and they're just kind of talking over the airwaves, which is also interesting because this spreads through using the English language and we have a radio DJ and that's an interesting form for this movie to take where his whole job is to talk to people. And that is ultimately what brings, you know, the infected people to his place. I also like that a doctor shows up to kind of fill in some more of the backstory and kind of stuff like that. Just all kind of works really well for me. This is also an interesting movie to watch while uh, we're living in a pandemic here. Because I know at one point the military cuts in speaking in French to say that people need to quarantine and stay inside, which is kind of an interesting thing that we're dealing with right now where people don't necessarily want to follow these type of commands. And we can kind of see that these mindless zombies are kind of fo like not following these orders, even though they are already infected, which I can see parallels right now, which makes it even more scary for me. I don't think this is a perfect movie. I don't know if I can ever go any higher than the score that I'm about to give this movie or not, in my opinion. I do think reading the novel and then maybe giving this a third viewing could possibly bring it up. I'm not really sure about that, but I definitely came in with a 9 out of 10 as it's up, you know, a half a point from the last time that I've viewed it. And then up next, one that I'm not overly thrilled about talking about, but the next movie is Twilight. This is from 2008. This is directed by Katherine Hardwick. It is written by Melissa Rosenberg, and it's from the novel written by Stephanie Meyer. This is starring Kristen Stewart, Robert Pattinson, and Billy Burke. This is technically listed as a drama fantasy romance that is made from the United States and currently sitting on a 5.2. 
and a 2.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being Bella Swan moves to Forks and encounters Edward Cullen, a gorgeous boy with a secret. Now, I feel like this is a movie that I need a bit of explanation to start with. I know most people do not consider this horror, and I can't fault the logic there. It is listed in the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working through, and I originally saw this in college when it came out when my sister said she liked them. I will admit, I didn't care for it then. Jamie wanted to put on a movie that she knew inside and out, as she wasn't going to make it all the way through before she went to bed, so we watched this together with me finishing it. So, like, the reason I'm also putting this in horror is, yes, we do, in this one at least, we have vampires that are killing people, so, I mean, it is what it is. So that's why I'm going to kind of give a little bit more of my interpretations for this. I'm not really going to delve too much into the story, because there's not really a whole lot to it. I mean, you have your typical teen angst where... Bella, who is Kristen Stewart, falls in love with Edward Cullen, who is Robert Pattinson. He is kind of blowing her off, and we get the start of a toxic relationship where... Also, I should also point out here that Bella was living with her mother, Renee, in Arizona. She got remarried to a Phil, and he's a minor league baseball player, so hitting the road for Jacksonville. So Bella decides to go stay with her father, Charlie, so who is Billy Burke, so her mother can, you know, be happy. And when she first gets up to town, she meets with Jacob, who is Taylor Lautner, who is a Native American. And we get to kind of get the feeling that he has a crush on her, but Bella doesn't seem to really notice it. But that's all I kind of really go go for there is that Edward keeps blowing her off and she ends up putting things together and realizes that he is a vampire. Now, I don't want to completely bash this film as I don't really like doing that. I do find this does have some positives to it. And I do like that they're actually incorporating real mythology from, you know, vampire lore into this movie. I get that's kind of an oxymoron to say it that way, but we also get to learn about shapeshifters, which I do know are also based in Native American lore. They date some of the vampire stuff that they learn about, even all the way back to Egypt. Now, as a young horror fan, if I would have watched this movie, I think this would have put me down the path to start learning more about you know, these vampires and everything like that and start seeking out older films because I'm a person, though, that I go down rabbit holes and do research. And I do have to give props here to Jamie as she explained to me that... Each of the vampires has a sense or an ability that is heightened in their changing. Now, this kind of reminded me of Soul Reaver from Legacy of Cain series, where at their, I think it's 1,000th birthday, they get whatever skill that they have gets amplified, and this is what kind of puts down Raziel to what happens there. But examples here from this movie is Edward has the ability to read minds, his brother Emmett, who is Kellen Lutz, was strong in life. So now that he's a vampire, he's much bigger. Then there's Alice, who is Ashley Green. She was tortured, I think is what they say in this movie. And it gives her the ability to read the future. Now, I apologize if this is any spoilers here, but I'm assuming most people listening to this probably don't care. And they also have to give credit here is that Stephanie Meyer did get a bunch of the generation that was starting to be attached to their phones to read, as this was a bestseller. So, I mean, I have to give props up there with, like, Harry Potter that it did get people to go back and read. But there's a lot of problems that, like, the baseball scene that we get in the movie, there's no way that the ball would be able to take the pressure that they're hitting it at. As, I mean, I've knocked the skin off a baseball before, so, I mean, I'm nothing special there. I believe the aluminum bat probably would have been trashed after a few uses just because of how hard they're hitting it. We actually have some really good actors in this movie. Like, I know Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson are both good actors, but for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just the material they're working with here, but they both come off as annoying. I don't like how this is normalizing toxic relationships, and, I mean, that's problematic from the beginning, especially because this is geared towards impressionable teens. It is kind of interesting to see, like, Anna Kendrick and Christian Serratos. This is very early in their career because, I mean, Anna Kendrick is, I mean, is a big movie star now, and... Serratos has been really popular on The Walking Dead, so it's just kind of cool to see them, you know, as young as they are here. Something else that's not really good in this movie is the effects. I completely loathe the fact that when the vampires are moving fast, they have this blur on it. The effects don't hold up, and it doesn't look good at all, in my opinion. And I also loathe the fact that they sparkle in the sunlight. I can be forgiving if you're going to ignore lore like needing to be invited in or that... They can go out into the sunlight. I just don't understand why they have to make them sparkle. And I'm also not the biggest fan that it downplays the creature side of them and to make them more human, which I get that's why you have to do it if you're going to have a vampire loving a normal woman with not wanting her to change her. But it's just something that just is kind of problematic to me. So this is a movie that I've been dreading giving the second watch to. And I can say that there's probably some things that I liked about it more than what I remembered. But it still isn't great. I feel like it's got a problematic storyline. And as somebody who has grown up on 
you know, pretty adult horror movies. This one just isn't for me. I get that there's people out there that love these movies, and I'm happy that there is that audience for it, but my rating here is a 4.5 out of 10. And then up next, I have Martyrs from 2008. This is written and directed by Pascal Logier. This stars Morjana Alawi, Mylene Jampanoi, and Catherine Begin. This is a horror film from France and Canada. It is currently set on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a young woman's quest for revenge leads the people who kidnapped and tormented her as a child and her friend, who is also a victim of child abuse, on a terrifying journey into the living hell of depravity. Now, this is another film that I heard a lot about from podcasts, but it took quite a while before finally seeing it. And I'll admit, some of it might have been nervousness because I heard about how brutal this is, and I can confirm it is. But if you can handle it, I think there's a message here that is well worth it. Now, this is my third time seeing this, with the second time being at the Gateway Film Center for the Horror 101 series, as well as another rewatch for the People's Council for the Summer Challenge series. Now, just to give a little bit of backstory here, is that we have a woman named Lucy that she was kidnapped by somebody as a child, and she was beaten and tortured. And then she ends up escaping, and we see that as she's fleeing as a child, that it's like a warehouse-style building. And then I think it's kind of an interesting thing is that we get some home videos and documentary of kind of recapping some of the things that happened to her. So it does give us an early taste of the torture that she endured. But then we end up jumping to the present where Lucy is Jampanoi. And then she has befriended Anna, who is Alawi. Now, she is also interesting because she is a runaway, and the two of them met as children at an orphanage, and they've kind of grown up and kind of clung together as each other's, like, safety blanket. Now, Lucy decides that she wants to get revenge on the people that hurt her when she finds a picture in the newspaper. Now, what I like here is that we aren't necessarily sure if this is the right people or not, or if, you know, kind of, or even if Lucy necessarily knows who actually hurt her. Now, what I really do like, though, is that we get to establish that this is, seems like a normal family, and it makes you question if Lucy has just lost it or if these are the people that really hurt her. And then we have Anna who is extremely anxious because she hasn't heard from her friend. And she thinks she's just going to go and, you know, kind of stake them out and figure out if this is actual people or not. But then she, as we get to see, has acted very rashly on getting her revenge. To add to this, there's also this creature that Lucy thinks is chasing her. It looks like a woman that's all been cut up and tortured to the point where her humanity is gone. Now, I really love the reveal on what this actually is, and we get to see kind of the backstory as well as the truth of the fact. It is something that is a great manifestation of something that really just works with everything that we get to see later on in the movie. So this film does a really interesting job, though, of making us think... Are these people that are being punished here actually the correct people? And when you get to see the reveal of the truth of everything, it is pretty disheartening. And the reason behind it, I think, is interesting because it really ties in science with religion, which if you know me, I'm an atheist and I don't follow organized religion. And a lot of that stemmed from I just found a lot of hypocrisy in it and everything like that. And then one thing I really have to give credit to for this is that the brutal realism we get with the effects. Seeing the torture looks quite vivid to the point where, like, it really bothers me. Now, this is the third time that I've seen it, as I said, so it doesn't affect me as much. But I think it's kind of interesting this time around that I was realizing that we as a viewer kind of become desensitized to it as our character does, which terrifies me. Even the afterlooks of the effects on the characters I thought looked really good because it looks quite realistic. And you just see as the characters give up that like you can just see it in their body language, which is interesting. And the film also seems to have a grainy look to it, which gives it even more of that gritty and brutal realism. thought it was pretty interesting how it's edited together is that we do follow a pretty linear story, but we do get intercuts to what happened to Lucy in the past. I like filling in this backstory just little by little, and then as things click, it's kind of like an epiphany type thing. thought the acting was really good, as I've been saying, from Aloy and Japano. I think that the characters are pretty amazing in the portrayal of the effects of what's happened to them. And I even like the supporting cast because it's scary is that they seem like normal people that are completely doing these horrible things behind the scenes. And it really just makes you wonder the people that 
live around you if you really know who they are and if anybody you know could be doing something like this which is just terrifying now what i will say if you can stomach the french extreme films i would give this a viewing as this is my personal favorite of the movement i know a lot of people kind of go back and forth between this and inside i give this one the nod and i mean i also am a really big fan of frontiers which i haven't i've only seen that one once and it's been a while but this just is an interesting film of what would you do if something like this happened to you? And just seeing what these people and why they're doing this is just completely heartbreaking and terrifying. And just, like I said, if you can watch this, just give us a viewing. It's hard to kind of explain without necessarily going into spoilers. But I, of course, am sticking with my original rating on this movie of a 10 out of 10. And then next up, I have Cloverfield from 2008. Now, this one I have actually another one that I've covered on the episode previously. I did a mini review back on episode 19, which was Centennial Club 3 back in March. But I gave this another rewatch, and I'll kind of delve into why here shortly. You probably can already guess if you know that this came out in 2008. This is directed by Matt Reeves. It's written by Drew Goddard. It stars Mike Vogel, Jessica Lucas, and Lizzie Kaplan. This is an action-adventure horror-mystery-sci-fi thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a group of friends venture deep into the streets of New York on a rescue mission during a rampaging monster attack. Now, of course, the reason I rewatched this is that it fell into the year that I had of 2008 for the People's Council over on the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. Now, all I really kind of wanted to delve into is that it's just wild to me that this is the fourth time I've seen this and, like, the third time I've seen it in the last, like, year or so. And this movie just holds up so well where I can just pop it on and just enjoy it all the way through. It's just interesting on some of the things that the movie has a short runtime. That's where I would say one thing. I love that this footage that we're seeing is from the area known as Clover Field. And I believe because they're calling the monster Clover, which is formerly known as Central Park. And I like how we get to kind of meet the characters before everything goes down. Is that we have Beth McIntyre, who is Odetta Annabelle. And then we also have Rob Hawkins, who is Michael Stahl David. We get to see a day that they spent together where things were good. And then we get to shift over that he's leaving. So then at his going away party, we get to meet all of his friends who helped plan it, as well as Beth, as we see that some bad things kind of went down between them and they're not really talking. I like how this found footage of being like a kaiju type movie really kind of works for me as... We get to see this at the ground level and seeing them trying to survive everything that's going down is just kind of fun and it keeps the tension building as things go on. I also kind of find it interesting as well that we don't really know what's going on and this is all over kind of like a 12 hour period or so I think from when everything starts till it ends. I mean probably even less than that. So we don't have a lot of explanation, a lot of answers and that kind of works for me. Now, there are some parts that don't necessarily work that I still kind of have issues with, like the military officers letting them letting them go and kind of breaking protocol. I mean, I guess it could possibly happen as they're going with the humanity of that person, but I just found that it would be pretty haphazard. So I guess, I mean, they, I think it would have been better just to have them slip away instead of, you know, them be the one guy letting them go. It doesn't ruin the movie, but just something that I noticed that kind of sticks with me. I think the acting is really good as nobody necessarily stands out, but everybody is believable. And I mean, I actually see a lot of myself in the character of TJ Miller, who is HUD, because I could see it if I was in this situation, just talking and making things awkward by the things that I'm saying to the point where people would get annoyed by me. Outside of that, I think the, obviously we have CGI because we don't have any creatures like this really on earth, but I don't think that it looks bad at all. It actually still surprisingly holds up. And what is also interesting about this, in my opinion, is that I thought at first we didn't really get to see the monster, but we do get to see it quite a bit, which I thought was kind of cool. We only get glimpses of it as it goes behind a building or does some things, but I just think for a you know kaiju-type movie, it has an interesting perspective from it that just really works for me, in my opinion. So I would end up saying that my rating of this still kind of has stayed the same. I don't know if it'll ever kind of go up, but I gave this one an 8.5 out of 10 still. And this week I also watched Paranormal Activity from 2007. This is written and directed by Oren Pelly. It stars Katie Featherston, Mika Sloat, and Mark Fredericks. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, after moving into a suburban home, a couple becomes increasingly disturbed by a nightly dynamic presence. 
Now, this is a film that I remember seeing when I was in college. It actually freaked me out then, and I remember telling my sister and dad, who are both big horror fans, this was one of the scariest films I had, I had seen. Now, I probably got sucked into the hype a little bit, but I will admit, this film does work for me still. I have seen this a handful of times, including, again, at the Gateway Film Center for their Horror 101 series, as well as with Jamie for the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s. Now, there's really not a whole lot to add from the synopsis. We just have Mika, who is played by Mika Slope, as he just got a new camera. And the reason is that he and his girlfriend, who is Katie, portrayed by Featherston, have been experiencing noises at night. He is trying to get proof of it on film, and he greets her in the driveway with the camera, which she doesn't seem to be too thrilled about it, and she's put off by the idea of what he wants to do. Now, they end up bringing in a psychic who is Fredericks, which I think is a creative way of giving you a backstory. Katie first experienced this entity when she was eight years old, and then that house burned down, and she didn't experience it until she got a little bit older, and it periodically comes and goes. The psychic tells them that the presence he feels is not a ghost, but a demon, and Mika isn't buying this, and he decides that he can handle this by himself. Now, progressively, things get worse and worse as they go, and as I was saying, this film still just gets my anxiety going. I personally do not believe in ghosts or demons, but from what I do know, you can't just catch them on normal film. And I think that the realism really brings something to that movie. Now, the noises and other things are really what is just happening, and it's very subtle, but for me, it's efficient and effective. The realism is also helped by the fact that this is found footage, which just adds something there. Now, I do believe that, you know, there are the issues that you come with the found footage subgenre. I like the idea that Mika isn't really taking this seriously, and if he is, he thinks that he can take care of it. His arrogance causes him to be a bit of a jerk and constantly carrying the camera around, which I do believe that, and with his personality, that's exactly what we are seeing. The scariest things happen at night at first, and where they have, you know, the wide lens and stationary camera. It's just a perfect placement where you can see everything that is going on. And I would argue that he's the real villain of this movie for challenging something he doesn't fully know everything about. Now, again, I know a lot of people say nothing really happens in this movie, but I think that is what really makes this good is the pacing. He doesn't waste any time establishing our characters, the plot, and the backstory. And then everything progressively gets worse and worse, where to me it feels pretty realistic, and I think that is what makes it even more scary. And then going along with that, I think the acting is really good as well. I think Featherston is great at showing fear and terror in the events that are happening. She's been living with this her whole life, and I like how they present that, where she doesn't want to mess with it and just wants it to be gone. Slow, on the other hand, I really just have hated the last couple of viewings, but he's needed in this movie, as he's a jerk, and because he hasn't taken this seriously, is what's making everything progressively get worse and worse till things you know, get to the point where he can't help anymore. The effects in this movie are pretty subtle. I mean, as you're just seeing something walk through powder, we don't actually get to see it. We just get to see the after effects. There's some tricks with shadows, and a lot of it is also with the soundtrack, where there isn't really anything outside of one song that he plays. And I'm glad they didn't overlay music on this. Everything else just seems to be ambient noise, and that is effective to me. It's just things bumping and whatnot. So I feel like this is really just a movie that isn't going to work for everybody. I know, like I said, some people find this to be boring, where other people find this to be absolutely terrifying. I am not as high on it as I was the first time. Like, I probably would have put this in my top 10, and I'm kind of glad that I've had some time to digest everything here and let it kind of marinate and whatnot like that. It's one of those ones that I can see why it makes everybody decisive on it and where some people, you know, are on board with some of the things that we get and why other people are not. I just think this is an interesting film. I can't believe that they actually spanned, you know, like four sequels. Cause I think there's five movies or six movies or whatever in the series. That's just absolutely amazing to me that such an easy premise could do what it did. And it costs such a low budget to make and everything like that. So like I said, I still find this to be quite effective. I don't, my, my rating on this has come down slightly. As last time I watched it, I was at a nine. I think this is an 8.5 and that's where it'll probably end up staying for me even after subsequent viewings, which... Another thing I have to give it is it has rewatchability. I've seen this probably four or five times at the least now, and it still just works for me. I might have even seen it more than that. It still gets my anxiety going, and it still scares me, to an extent at least, where I am now at an 8.5 on this movie. Last mini-review for this week is going to be Black Friday from 1940. This is directed by Arthur Lubin. This is co-written between Kurt Sadamak and Eric Taylor. This stars Boris Karloff. Bella Lugosi and Stanley Ridges. This is a crime, drama, horror, mystery, sci-fi thriller from the United States. 
This is currently set on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being Dr. Sovak transplants the brain of a gangster into his professor friend's body to save his life, but there are side effects that cause a dangerous split personality. Now, this is a film that I actually had never heard of until I was working my way through the horror movie encyclopedia to kind of deepen my knowledge of ones that I've never actually like heard of. And I wasn't really sure about this one, aside from the little blurb that was in that book. Now, this is my second time viewing it, as this is a horror film from 1940, so I wanted to make sure that I saw this before doing, you know, that recap episode of, you know, a countdown of the top 25, even though it's not going to be that many. I had seen it previously, but I'm not going to make it a feature review because of that reason, so that's why I'm covering it here as a mini-review. Now, to give just a little bit more information here, we have Dr. Sovak, who is Boris Karloff. We get to see in the beginning here he's in prison and he's being led to be executed, which we learned that he had committed murder so that is you know the reason that they are going to put him in the electric chair as he's coming in though he actually gives his notes to a reporter because he claims that they were the only ones fair to him during this whole ordeal now the reporter reads through it and then we actually get to go back into the past to see what led up to this it happened on friday the 13th we see an english professor by the name of george kingsley who is stanley ridges as he's finishing up his class he might not be returning next year as he has to go before a regent board, and the students generally seem to like him, though. He cannot drive, so his friend of Dr. Sovak is meeting him along with the doctor's daughter of Jean, who is Anne Gwynn, and then George's wife of Margaret, who is Virginia Brissack. Now, we get to see that George is somewhat clumsy, and as he's going across the street, there is a car chase that is going on, and as well as gunfire. And then what ends up happening is the lead car crashes into George. Now, the doctor tries to save him, and this gangster is known as Red Cannon. He ends up deciding that his friend is more important to save than this gangster, so he ends up taking the brain from his friend, and, or from this gangster, and putting it into his friend's head. And then it seems to be a success, but Margaret starts to notice that there's differences in the way that George acts. And then Dr. Sovak comes up with the idea that Red had hid away a half a million dollars, so he wants to see if he can find that money. And he ends up taking him to he ends up taking him to New York City to see if they can find that. But then while they're there, he does jar some memories loose, and this causes Red to come out and starts to kill off those that were behind his death. But we also see that Dr. Sovak has some other plans and is somewhat in charge of everything going on here. Now, this is an interesting movie to me because it's kind of a different take on the Jekyll and Hyde concept. And this is also playing with some ideas that we would see in some of the later Frankenstein films from the older, like from the later Universal, as well as the Hammer films about transplanting the brain of a criminal into somebody else. I did find it intriguing to learn, though, that it's only a partial brain that they needed to make this body come back to life, hence why you have both people inside the body and that they're kind of competing for control. But what I also seem to find interesting here is that we just have some horrible characters across the board. Dr. Sovak seems like a good guy that's trying to save his friend, but then when he learns about the money, which is pretty much immediately after the surgery, he becomes a villain that wants to use his money to create a laboratory for himself. And I guess we're kind of getting at here is that greed is a corrupting factor. And then we also have Eric Marnie, who is Bella Lugosi, and then there's Red and Sonny, and the rest of the gang, there's your typical gangsters, so there's really none of that. I think this old saying goes that there's no honor amongst thieves. I kind of feel like Sonny is confused about Red being in a different body, you know, being in the professor. But all these characters are willing to backstab each other to find this money. And really the only good characters are George himself, Jean, and Margaret. And I feel bad for the latter because she really just wants her husband back and doesn't realize that he died and that they shouldn't have rushed the change, you know, to Dr. Sovak, though. As I think that if they hadn't have rushed his change, they could have established his humanity and it could have ended up making him a little bit more villainous. But, you know, it is what it is. And these movies usually have a low running time where if they would have kind of expanded out the idea, it would have made it, you know, kind of a better movie overall. Outside of that... I do think the acting is good. Karloff is great just as somebody who looks like he's good on the outside but hor harboring horrible secrets. I also think that Lugosi makes a fine gangster in this movie, even though he doesn't have a lot of screen time, and I kind of feel that I can see why some of the butting of heads between him and Karloff is I think it's Karloff's fault as everything that went down is he was supposed to have a different role in this movie. But I really think that Ridges steals the show. He plays two different characters who are very distinct, and even though like it's just a change of the personality, I think I'm fine with that, even though I think people would be able to point it out in general. The rest of the cast was fine. Other than that, there's not really a whole lot more to delve into with this movie, to be honest. 
There's not a lot in the way of effects. It's not really that type of movie. There's some missed opportunity where the movie is a little bit boring because they're not fleshing out enough and the soundtrack didn't really stand out. So that's all I really wanted to say on this movie and I came in with a 6 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. You get bit. This planet we're on is so sick of our shit. That's why the dead keep coming back to life. You're immune. I'm not. What if my baby isn't either? It's bad. Ninagasi. I heard that you could cure bites here. Ain't nobody immune here but us. One of them could come in here and infect this entire camp. Behind you. You wanna live? Who says we're immune? And for my first featured review for this week, it's going to be Blood Quantum from 2019. This is written and directed by Jeff Barnaby. It stars Michael Grayeyes, L. Maja Tailfeathers, and Forrest Goodluck. This is a horror film from Canada. This is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With synopsis being, the dead are coming back to life outside of the isolated Mi'kmaq reserve of Red Crow, except for its indigenous inhabitants who are strangely immune to the zombie plague. Now this is a film that I had been hearing some buzz about when it hit Shudder. And I know I listened to a No More Room in Hell Presents Fresh Cuts episode on this movie. And from everything I heard from the people that were hosting on that episode, it definitely intrigued me. This might have been referenced also on another podcast that I listened to, but I can't confirm that offhand. And I didn't really go and back and check, but I think I might have also heard somebody else talk about this movie. And I'm a fan of zombie films when they're done right, so I decided to give this a viewing. Now, when we start this off, there's a quote about taking heed and make no treaty to those that inhabited the land there. It also states that to make sons with your daughters and your sons will do that as well. Now, this is kind of an interesting little thing here because, I mean, this is credited as a settler's proverb. And I mean, this is exactly what was happening when white people started to inhabit North America and taking the land from the indigenous population in that we would have like our children marry into theirs and it's an interesting little thing here that i should bring up that blood quantum is the amount of native american blood are in people now there are some native american tribes that you actually have to have a certain percentage in order to be considered a citizen of those people and it's really just a way of where you're diluting the blood down so that way they lose more and more of their power as they become you know assimilated into the people that aren't actually from that area and then we get to see the character of Gisagu, who is Stonehorse Lone Goman, as he's fishing. He has caught a bunch of salmon, but when he goes to gut them, they're all flopping around and they're no longer dead, and this spooks him. The movie then gives us an overhead view of the area that we're going to be taking place in, and we learn that this is the Red Crow Reservation back in 1981. It then gives us a cartoon of a pregnant woman, and the Earth are both being destroyed by factories and pollution. We also get to see a baby inside the womb of Earth. Now, this is all done over top of the credits. And this is something else that I found quite interesting because, I mean, this is something that we're still facing today where pollution is creating global warming. And I'm not going to get too much into that because I know not everybody listening could necessarily agree with my beliefs on all of this. But we do have to point out that we have done some horrible things to the environment. And this is showing us that this infection that is kind of happening from the pollution that is happening is not only hurting man but it's also hurting earth because we get to see that there is a baby inside of earth 
you know, speaking that, you know, like, we are the children of this land that we are living on. And then we're following the local sheriff as he goes out to a man named Moon to his place, and he is played by Gary Farmer. The sheriff is named Trailer, and he is portrayed by Grey Eyes, and he's been called out there as Moon's dog is sick. He thinks that it possibly could have gotten into some rat poisoning that was in the garbage, but he's not 100% sure. Then Trailer ends up shooting the dog to put it out of its misery because it is struggling. Trailer then goes over to his ex-place, who is Joss, portrayed by Tail Feathers. She is splitting her own wood, and she's a nurse, just showing that she's a very independent woman. Now, when Trailer arrives, she relays that their son, Joseph, is in lockup. The dispatcher, by the name of Doris, portrayed by Felicia Shulman, has been trying to get a hold of Trailer on the phone all morning, but he hasn't been home to take any of those calls. Trailer then tells Joss that they'll pick up their son out of lockup at noon. Then he goes out to his car, and Doris gives him the rundown over the police radio. She relays that Joseph has been picked up with a man named Lysol, and we'll learn about him in just a minute, and then a man named Shooker, who is portrayed by, we'll see later, of William Bellew, has been trying to get an ambulance all night as his pregnant girlfriend is having some issues, and we kind of learn that the indigenous population in this area isn't treated all that well, and the townies kind of even though this is their land, don't really treat him the best, and this is partially why the ambulance hasn't gone out to help him yet. And it doesn't also help that Shooker is a drug addict. And then she also relays that Trailer's father has called in this morning, and he seems really scared. Now, Trailer relays his instructions and then goes about making all of these situations right. This takes him first to his father's place, and his father is Gisigu. It is there that we learn that the dead are coming back to life as the salmon are still alive even though they've been gutted and the dog that is in the trunk that trailer had tried to put out of its misery earlier is back to life as well. They go ahead and burn all of these animals with trailer getting his father out of retirement as a deputy. So that was kind of a cool thing to show that his that this has kind of been a family business. And I mean, I know sheriffs usually are voted in by the people, but it's kind of cool to see that his father was respected by the people and that trailer as as well as he has taken over the same position then we get to see in lockup that joseph is portrayed by good luck and lysol is portrayed by kiowa gordon we should also point out here that there's another man in there who is quite sick and is throwing up blood joseph and lysol are actually half brothers where joseph is making bad choices while hanging out with lysol which I do have to give a shout out to Moods, who was on that Fresh Cuts episode, and he's also from the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror, that Lysol is a very derogative name because I think they're trying to say that, well, we've, we get to see that he's an alcoholic, that he has a drinking problem and he also does drugs, but Lysol also being bleach is, it makes me wonder if his mother must have been white and that this is a derogatory term that he has less Native American blood than his brother does as Joseph's parents are both Native American and that's where I'm kind of thinking at. And then we also learned that Lysol's mother later on died of a, a very well-known death. So I'm wondering if she drug overdosed, killed herself, did something along these lines. Because he definitely has low self-esteem and lashes out at people. And his way of doing it also is to be using substances to make himself feel better. When Trailer finally shows up, we see just how sick the guy in their cell really is. He's been throwing up blood for a good portion when we get to see him, and he has bit Joseph as well as Shamu, the officer that's on duty, and he's portrayed by Kent McQuaid. Now things get out of hand as there are a bunch of reports of people being of biting other people, and then we learn that something quite important, despite Trailer and Joseph being bit, they aren't being infected where we do see like a white nurse gets bit and then she turns, as well as we see that shooker's girlfriend who is also white she has turned as well and the movie jumps us six months into the future where there is a small civilization set up they have a solid plan of survival but more and more of the townies of white people keep seeking refuge with the native americans in the area this upsets lysol as their safety is put in jeopardy every time they help them and we get to see this is definitely the case where a guy dies in a bathroom stall and then he comes back and then we also see that there is somebody who comes in who has been bit and has been trying to hide it now this addiction still runs deep with this population as even the best laid plans have problems now i know i went a bit longer with my recap here but this is pretty much everything that i felt needed to be laid out and this is really only like the first 40 minutes of the film 
It felt like I needed to relay as much of this as I could without going into spoilers, which I'm not going to do a spoiler section for this movie, as there's a lot of, like, allegories, but I don't think it ruins the movie by me diving into it. I'm also kicking myself for not having watched this movie earlier, as I don't think this is the best film I've ever seen, but it really does a lot of things that I dig with the social commentary and allegories going on underneath everything. The first thing is that as a zombie film, I thought this was pretty solid. What is interesting is that we're getting running zombies. In the grand scheme of things, this isn't my favorite, but I like the realism what they're doing with it in this movie. The ones that are running are zombies that are more freshly dead. The longer they're dead, they start to rot, and so this causes them to slow down, so it is an idea that I really can get behind. Going along with this idea of the Native Americans being immune, it doesn't need to go into why, which I like. Now, Moon does throw out the idea that the Earth has just forgot about them, but it is also interesting that Native American culture, they're much more in tune with the Earth, so there's a possible explanation there. And I mean, I'm going off of this is that, you know, they were hunters and gatherers where they would use everything from what they hunted, and unlike, you know, white people when they would start overhunting things to extinction, they would use every part of this, and they're much more in tune with nature. They believe that their gods were nature-based things, so I thought that was kind of a cool thing to play with here that they would be immune. Now, I did find it interesting that the blood quantum was something that is used, you know, to determine the amount of Native American blood a person has in them. I had no idea this was a thing until this movie came out and it caused me to look into this. But I also find it interesting as, you know, using that as a title here for this movie. Since speaking of the idea of being immune, we do have the character of Charlie, who is portrayed by Olivia Scriven. She's dating Joseph and we first meet her in the hospital when she's trying to decide to have an abortion or not. Joseph seems to want her to keep the child, but he's respectful to allow her to make the decision, which I do like his character for that. He does do some problematic things and gets into some trouble, but I do like that he seems like a good guy. She's not immune when things go down, obviously, being that she is white. Her child might be because of the fact that the father is Joseph. And we also see an interesting thing as Shooker's girlfriend is also pregnant, and we get a pretty horrific scene with her when we get to see her in the movie. I bring this up that there's a scary concept of being pregnant during this time, but it also brings up, you know, not being ready to be a parent, especially with Joseph and Charlie being so young. But it makes you wonder that if you have a white child and that child passes away in the womb, or like if you get infected and you could pass on, you know, the infection to that child, that's terrifying to have something inside of you that could be infected. Now, there's also the racism in this movie, but I did enjoy the different take and how it's handled. I did learn from the podcast episodes about the Native Americans in Canada. doesn't seem to be treated as bad, but I'm not saying that they weren't treated poorly up there. Much like here in America, addiction and being killed off through disease is what's happened up in Canada as well. What I really like, though, is the turning the concept when the world has ended and them being immune make them take back charge of their land. We get an interesting allegory here where a character takes someone who is infected and sends them among those who could be infected if they're bitten. I, when I was talking to Jamie about this, it's not that much different from white people giving blankets infected with smallpox to the Native Americans as a way to kill them off as population control and to take over areas. So even though what the character's doing is horrible and I don't necessarily agree with it, I can't fault him because he's literally just doing what white settlers did back in the day and, you know, it is what it is. And then the last aspect I wanted to go over to with the idea of this movie is that it seems like a more realistic take on zombie films as well. I say that because the Native Americans can't be infected by the virus and they get bit quite a lot. And I think it's kind of a cool thing because I feel like this is something that even your best laid plans could fail and I thought that was a cool thing to play with. We see that Trailer's back is covered in bites. Joseph has been bit and there's a cool scene near the end where a group is asked who has the most flesh as they're going to go in and take on a bunch of zombies, so if they get bit, it's not a big deal. It just hurts. It adds an interesting dynamic to a movie like this for sure. And since I'm talking about zombies, I should go to the effects here next. I think that they're well done across the board. The look of those infected is good. Most of the effects look to be practical, which I'm always on board for. We get some really good gore and blood spray as well. Now, there's really one scene later on in the movie that I could tell was CGI. I am not going to hold that against the movie because it's really quick and... That's about it. And I also like the mask that Lysol has when the world ends. It's the figure that we see on the poster. It just looks really cool in the movie itself. And aside from that, I thought the cinematography is good in my opinion. It's used strategically at different times, which help to hide things. And I think that's probably where the effects work even better for me in doing that. And there's also a few different scenes of animation. Like I said, the one for the credits. We also get one at the end where we get to see a cool looking character 
as you know he's trying to fight off a bunch of the zombies and then we get another one right there in the middle as well which i just think they kind of work to kind of get us up to speed on some things and i think you can do a little bit more with animation than what you can you know with live action people then the last thing i wanted to go over here before i ended this would be the acting i like that the movie actually has actual actors of that race playing the characters Grey Eyes plays such an interesting character in my opinion as well. He had Lysol at a young age and he sees that he's messed up there. He's trying his best and but he's made mistakes. I think he's a good man but I just love the problematic hero that he is in this movie and he's harder on himself than I think he necessarily has to be but some of the things that he's done I can't blame him for being hard on himself because that is what I do with myself so I guess I kind of see little bits of me there but not on the grand scale of this character in full. Tail Feathers is quite attractive, and I like her character as well. She seems like a rock person here, and she's one of those ones that just tries to help people, and, you know, she's trying to help along to make this civilization kind of work. Good Luck is solid, and I really like Gordon as well. He brings arrogance, and I like that he kind of makes a great villain in my eyes near the end, and I also really like Goldman's character. Scriven is also cute, and I thought the rest of the cast just rounded this movie out for what was needed. So now with that said, I'm glad I finally gave this movie a chance. It has such an interesting concept in my eyes. And there's another interesting way of taking a concept that I think is a bit played out in my eyes in the zombie genre. I like making this race that has been marginalized for quite a while. Telling the story from their point of view and putting them back in charge of everything. The acting really helps to bring this to life. The effects were on point aside from one blip. The soundtrack was fine as well, but not really one that stood out for me. Overall, I'd say this is a good movie and one that could potentially be a year end for, you know, my top 10 of the year. It's been kind of an interesting one with this whole COVID thing and everything like that, which also makes this another interesting film to come out during this time. Since, you know, being an infection film and we're living in a pandemic currently. But that's all I really wanted to delve into for this movie. I came in with an 8.5 at this time out of 10. Be interesting to check this out one more time before the year ends to see if that rating, you know, stays where it's at or goes down or, you know, kind of does anything like that. But what I'm going to go ahead and do next is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Horrors of Spider Island. Eight beautiful girls and one lone man struggling for survival. With death, sudden, violent, and horrible lurking in the shadows. Horrors of Spider Island. Out of the night came a fate worse than death. A man's mind twisted, his brain poisoned, with an uncontrollable lust to kill. Spider Island. A tale of terror that will leave you limp. So hideous and shocking, you won't believe your eyes. His hunger for victims was never satisfied. Prepare to be frightened out of your wits by the horrors of Spider Island. And for my second feature review is Horrors of Spider Island. This is directed, and he also co-wrote this movie. It's Fritz Bottinger, but he did direct this under the name Jamie Nolan. He co-wrote this with Eldon Howard and Albert G. Miller. This stars Harold Marinch. Helga Frank and Alexander D'Arcy. This is a horror film from West Germany. This is currently sitting on a 2.5 on IMDb and a 1.8 on Letterboxd. With synopsis being survivors of a plane crash on a remote island find it covered by spiders. When bitten, the survivors start turning into spiders. And there was an exclamation point at the end, which is why I raised my voice ever so slightly. Now this is a movie that I never heard of until I was looking through my list of horror films from 1960. 
I already knew one of the movies that was going to be featured on this week's episode here, which you've already heard of, Blood Quantum. So I wanted a movie that I thought might pair well with it. And I have to say, I failed with this one. And I decided that I would come in blind to check it out, and that is partially why. Now, I don't mean to play my, my hand too early here, but the synopsis makes this movie sound way better than what it is. And I have a feeling that my recap might even do that as well. But I'll delve into that here after you know I go through everything. Now, we start outside of the office of Mike Blackwood, who is portrayed by Walter Faber. Now, Gary Webster, who is DRC, and his partner of Georgia, who is Frank, go in when they arrive at the building. They're looking to hire some women to take to Singapore as a dance troupe. When they bring them in one after another, they hire Anne, who is Helga Neuer, Gladys, who is Dorothy Parker, May, who is Jerry Sammer, Nellie, who is Eva Showland, Kate, who is Helma Vandenberg, Linda, who is Elfie Wagner, and Babs, who is Barbara Valentine, who I don't really recognize the name, but from everything that I'm seeing, she might have been semi-important in German cinema. Now, trouble strikes, though, when their plane crashes over the Pacific Ocean. They make it to a life raft, but their water is running low. Gary actually smacks one of them for drinking more than their fair share of the water, but, but they all seem to have been saved after the plane has crashed. And the problem is, though, that... The people that were reporting to the aircraft don't know where they went down because they never got the coordinates. And this isn't the first time that there'll be something misogynistic happen in this movie either. Now, they end up seeing a bird, which means that land is nearby. Now, an island is found, and they make their way to it with Gary needing to carry most of them off of the raft to, you know, safety. After resting, they find a supply of water with a waterfall, and they explore the island. They come upon a cabin but make a ghastly discovery inside. There's a Professor Green who is uncredited in the movie, so I'm not sure who actually portrayed the act, who, what the actor's name was. But he's dead, and he's in a giant spider web. They then take the man's body out of the cabin and then settle in. Somehow, Gary guesses that they're mining for uranium just because he found a hammer with a long handle. And Georgia confirms from his journal that this is the case. I guess you only have you know long hammers like that when you're looking for uranium. Just kind of feels like the movie is being way too convenient just to kind of move itself along, which I'm partially glad about. Tensions run high as the women fight over clothing that they have found, and Linda comes on to Gary. Georgia sees this, and Gary decides to take a walk, blaming the heat for why he kissed her. Georgia, on the other hand, smacks Linda around for what she did. Now, there's something dangerous on this island, though. We saw, you know, the giant web, and then we also get a glimpse of a giant spider. Gary is attacked while he's gone, and changes come over him. Now, Professor Green wasn't working alone, though. He had helpers of Joe, who is Marish, and then Robbie, who is Rainier Brandt. Now, they end up showing up on the island later, and this is where things kind of take a odd turn. Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap, because I'm going to flat out admit, I think my recap, again, makes this movie sound better than what it really is as well. I'll start with the positives before I pick this apart. I dig the island concept. This isn't a, The setup isn't horrible that they got stranded there by a plane crash. The idea that their ship was going over the Pacific and them ending up on this island is a good idea. I'm a little bit confused as to why it had to be a group of women, but I learned that this was originally filmed as an adult film called It's Too Hot in Paradise. It was then recut to what we have here. I don't even think that the effects are all that bad. It feels like a cheap, cheesy monster movie from the 1950s that just missed the era. The spiders look fake, but I'll give credit for them doing something practical here. And on top of that, I like what they do with Gary once he starts to change into a spider like we learned from the synopsis. They use a lot of long shots where you can clearly see that they did not do his makeup and also to hide the nudity of the scenes as well. It is what it is, but I'm not going to give them too much credit either. My problem with this movie is it doesn't feel like what they're pretending to give us. We get like three minutes, if that, of the spider, and then we sprinkle in times where our now creature is stalking our women. Since the footage was pieced together to make this into a monster-like slash horror film, that explains why we get everything else. There's even this odd scene where Robbie, once he like learns that there's these women on the island, bounces from all of them that aren't Anne, Linda, or Georgia, but then we're led to believe that he loves Gladys. It just has a misogynistic approach that these women need a man. I really think that there's some good things that could have been done here, and they really are just trying to make a quick buck without really putting care into it. There were multiple times where I was like, oh, if they just tweak this here, this might have been a halfway decent flick. I can't even really give a lot of credit to the actors either. Marish, I guess, is fine, but he's billed as our hero, and he doesn't even really do anything until the climax. He's also quite awkward. 
Franck is probably the best character, and they write her to be submissive, and I don't like that. I almost feel like if they would have had her be the focus, this could have been a much better film again. Darcy is supposed to be a man's man, but he's not being held accountable for his own actions. I don't mind him as the villain that he becomes, though, because I don't really care for him. The rest of the girls are just written again to be as submissive. They're attractive from what I can see, and they're really just there as eye candy, and that's what this movie really just wants to be. And really the last thing to go over would be the soundtrack. I don't really call much of it in the way of trying to build up the creepiness of some of the scenes. And we really just get music that you'd be built up for, you know, seeing half-naked women in bikinis for those type of films that were popular in this era. It really feels more like they just wanted a movie like that, but decides we can just tweak it for the horror fans of the era and they'll like it, right? Doesn't work for me, the movie or the soundtrack. Now with that said, I am apologizing that this is going to be a very short review, but there's really not much more that I can do about it, because this movie's just frustrating because there's little tweaks that could have been done to make it better. Feels like the footage was already filmed and they just decided like, hey, we can fit this together, a few more things to work with it, and you know, it'll be a decent movie. It isn't. When I saw this movie was from West Germany, it makes sense. It seems like a foreigner trying to make a movie popular in the decade before and it's just cookie cutter. It focuses on all the wrong things and is just boring. I can give some credit to the effects, but we don't get enough of it for it to really help and I mean if they would have focused on that more it would have been better I feel like. It just doesn't work in any sense. This is just a bad movie and I'm giving very little credit for most of the aspects that I even tried to give credit to and I had to come in with a 1.5 out of 10 on this movie. Now there was some trivia that I found that I'm going to throw in here. This was first released in the United States in 1962 as an adults-only movie titled It's Hot in Paradise. Three years later, trimmed of its nude scenes, it was re-released in the U.S. as horror-slash-sci-fi monster film Horrors of Spider Island. This German-language film was dubbed into English for North American release, and although Egyptian-born European race star Alexander D'Arcy spoke fluent English, his lines were dubbed by an unknown American actor. This film was refused a UK cinema certificate in 1960 as Horrors of Spider Island. It was eventually released on DVD uncut in 2010. There's a French dub version of the film that has some continental, which I guess means topless footage. These images don't appear in the US print and most German prints, included in Elvira's Something Weird collection, seen on Comcast On Demand October 2006. Shortly after the film opens, Gary Webster, pulls up in front of a building. The car he's driving is a 1958 Chevrolet Impala convertible. The car he almost backs into as he parks is a 1957 Ford, which appears to be the same car shown in the film's opening shot, driven down a palm tree lined street. Now that was really all I had for that. And again, there's no real reason to have any spoiler sections because there's really nothing more to delve into. So what I'm gonna go ahead and do though is get you over to the Last musical break before I close out the show. Welcome back. 
Just to close everything out here, I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me. Now, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past reviews, that's at Reviews of the Dead, and that is horrorreview.webnode.com, and I will have that link in the show notes. If you want to add me on Facebook, you can do so at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And if you want to download the FlickChat app on Android or iOS, that can be done there. And you can add my little section on that at Journey with a Cinephile. And whatever you're listening to this on, if you haven't yet, if you could go ahead and hit the subscribe, as well as if there's a way to rate and review, that would be greatly appreciated if you could do that for me as well. Aside from that, I'm not entirely sure what the two movies for the next episode, which is going to be another Journey Through the Aughts. I do know, though, I'm going to be finally watching Peeping Tom, which I've heard a lot about that since it's a 1960s film. I will give it a viewing, and that will be one of the featured reviews. I've had a couple people on Instagram on one of the accounts that I manage over there has reached out for me to watch their film so I'm definitely going to look into that as possibly pairing up with Peeping Tom but I'm not 100% sure as of yet but it's something that is a definite possibility once again though I would like to thank you for coming on this journey here with your tour guide David Garrett Jr. whatever you do today I hope you are safe in doing so and this is signing off <laughs>